0: All right, good morning, everybody. This morning we'll be in Psalms 74, 75, and 76, Lord willing. That's what I planned for anyway. We'll see. I want to go through some of the slides if you can. I'm sorry, I'm not very organized this morning. Uh, T-Night, October 23rd, 6 to 9. You can read it for yourself, I guess, board games, cards, card games, and uh, charades uh, join them for that. It'll be a, a a great night, October 23rd. That's a Sunday. Uh, potluck is not going to be the first of November, but we're going to do it the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Like we always do, but sometimes we forget. So that's the plan, 6.30. Bring whatever you want to bring. I don't know what kind of meat we'll have for you, so bring something that kind of goes with everything, I guess. Um, and, and I take suggestions for that. Sometimes, I don't know, we get the same old stuff coming in. You're like, hey, what about ribs? I don't think we can do ribs for like... 100 people but you know what i mean give me an idea and you can send that to me and i'll we'll, we'll think it through harvest party october 31st uh 4 to 9 p.m. we still have a few slots open if anybody wants to sign up and help that night um and you know the drill on that and then shoebox collection we're going to do uh the drop off november 14th to the 20th and a packing party maybe we have a slide for that maybe we, yes November 18th at 7 p.m. So that's what those boxes are out there for by the table with uh, Operation Christmas Child um, uh, information. Uh, you can put extra stuff in there, and then we'll have a packing party and pack as many boxes as we can. So that'll be November 18th at 7 p.m. Everybody can come out, we get in the line, and we do like an assembly line, you know. And uh, Or I think what did we do last time, we grabbed a box, so you could just go through and grab what you wanted to and kind of pack boxes that way. It wasn't an assembly line, it was more personal. So anyway, that's what we plan on doing. Let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to dive into your word. We thank you for the singing, the worship time that we've had so far. Um, as we were brought through that process, I think we'll have the same in these three psalms, Lord. Um, as you've written them in such a way or put them in your word in such a way that it shows the, um, the captivity, uh, being taken into Babylon, the acceptance of your judgment, but also then the restoration process uh, that you take them through the nation of Israel. and So we thank you for these three psalms. In Jesus' name, amen. This uh, first psalm that we're going to go over, Psalm 74, is uh, it's entitled, you know, save me from my imp- oppression. Um, help me from the oppression. We need relief from it. And I can identify with that, can't you? Sometimes you're like, okay, we're told in Scripture that the enemy has fiery darts that he shoots at us, Right? And it seems like he's got about a billion of them is the problem. I can handle 10 fiery darts, you know, and uh, pray them away and pull every thought captive and, you know, do scripture ninja with them or whatever. But after a while, you're like, okay, you know, could I have a break? Could I have a day off? You know, kind of thing. Um, And nation of Israel is in that place. This psalm was written, we believe, during the time that Nebuchadnezzar is... uh, well, it's laid siege to he has, they have, the Babylonians have laid siege to Jerusalem, have conquered it and are destroying the temple now. Um, we all know, if you've studied scripture at all, and if you don't, we'll go over it a little bit today, why that happened to the nation of Israel, that it was because of their sin, their neglect of God and the worship, and they're not obeying his commands to let the, the land rest every seventh year and so on. They just were just they were just very flippant about their walk with the Lord, and it had turned into a backsliding situation. And what that means, if that's new to you, a different term, is they were walking with God, but then they began to move away from it, and he wasn't so important. He began to take a a passenger seat to their life, and then a back seat to their life, and pretty soon he wasn't even in the car anymore with the nation of Israel. Well, God loves us and loves the nation of Israel, and he'll only let that go so far. A backslider will be warned, I believe, through Scripture, if they're still in it, maybe through a dream, through prayer, from a message from a pulpit, perhaps, even from a radio station, whatever, you know, some kind of sermon that they're listening to, a song even, can bring a a backslider back to their relationship with God. But after a while, as they become dull of hearing and they forget to listen or they don't want to listen or they can't even discern the voice of the Lord anymore in their lives, God will make it stronger and stronger, a stronger impression upon their lives until finally he has to do certain things. I have to bring you into captivity. And here's why. I'm not just mad, God says. I'm not just trying to punish you for doing evil and wickedness against me, although he could, and that is coming. He's trying to save us from that, from the obvious outcome of our walking away from God. When you refuse to walk with God and have rejected him and you begin to move in that direction of sin, that path leads to death. There is no in between. There is no, you're either moving forward with God or you're moving away from God. There is no stability there. You need to constantly be moving forward with the Lord. He wants to bring us to maturity. And so the backsliding state is just that I've stopped moving forward and I'm slipping and sliding and it gets faster and faster. Nation of Israel is, Well, they're at breakneck speed. And so God steps in and says, I'm not going to ruin and lose all of you. And so he steps in and does something drastic here and uses an ungodly nation, the nation of Babylon, whom we'll talk about in another issue, but he uses the ungodly to bring the godly back to where they're supposed to be. That's happened to me in my life several times. Several times, God's tried to get a hold of me, um, trying to get me saved, trying to recognize the fact that He even exists and that He loves me. And several times, I've rejected Him and all, until finally, He uses means, and He has a lot of means by which He can use, to bring me to that place of humility, that place of brokenness. Not, not, he didn't break me. He just said, this is where you're headed, and I'm going to put you here temporarily so that you can feel the heat And then he gets me out of the fire and says, do you want to go back there ever again? Well, of course not. I don't want to go back there ever again. Good. Then stay close to me because away from me is that, you know. Well, the nation of Israel is in that place. In these Psalms, you've got, you have three groups of people. You have believers. They're the ones writing the psalm. You don't have, they're not, everybody's not gone. Not everybody's away from the Lord. There's always a remnant left in Israel. And so you have these people that are sort of caught up in the wake of the evil generation around them. And a lot of us can identify with that at times. You can feel the oppression coming from poor decisions other people have made, right? And it comes upon you. And so those are the believers, and those are the ones writing the song. Then there's the unbelievers, and they don't know what's going on. All they know is we weren't able to touch Israel before, but now as Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is able to touch Israel. We could never get close to them. Their God was too strong. He's too powerful. But all of a sudden, hey, we're in. How did this happen? Nebuchadnezzar, for a while there, we get the sense that he becomes a believer and kind of understands that God is the God of all gods. And, you know, you get that sense in Daniel and and all but then he gets to that place where he's like, "You know what? Maybe it was me after all. Maybe it was my brilliant tactics that actually crushed this God of Israel. And it was me." And so he makes this big, you know, gold statue of himself and all, and, it's me, and it's me and it's me and it's me. And God says, "You know, it wasn't you." Puts him in a field, takes his mind from him, puts Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, in a field for months at a time until his hair was all gone. He acted like a wild beast and animal because God just said, "I'm going to take your sanity for a little bit." Just so you understand that I can, first of all, and that it wasn't you. That I allowed you. And then he gave his sanity back. And there was humility and then there's some brokenness and more to the story. So you've got those unbelievers that are in this story. And then you've got the backsliders, which is what the story's about. It's all about the backsliders. God is concerned for those that used to walk with God and are no longer walking with God. And he loves them too much to not say something about it or do something about it. And many of us as parents understand what that's like, right? You know, you know, you have to say something. You want to do something. You want to step in, you intervene, you, you care too much to just say, you know what, go live your life the way you want to live it. Now, some of you grew up with baby parents that didn't care so much and let you. They didn't step in. They weren't annoying, annoying and a, and a nag, you know. As a parent, you're called to be annoying, <laughs> you're called to be a nag. We don't have to be friends, but I am going to be your parent. I'm going to be your dad. I'm going to be your mom. And that's the important relationship. Friends are great if we can have it, but otherwise it's going to be dad and mom. And I'm going to say what I need to say and do what I need to do. Very important um, to never forsake the parenthood for friendship. And our God is our father. We love Jesus and we talk about the friendship we have with Him and that He's closer than a brother and all these things about that that almost make it, well, we are, we're chummy with Him, which is great, and He wants that. But make no mistake about it, the Father is preeminent in our lives. And when He needs to step in and say something to us, He will. And He does that for the nation of Israel. That's where we are in these Psalms. Verse 1, that was a lot of setup. <laughs> Verse one. Oh God. Why have you cast us off forever? Why why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees, and now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, Let us destroy them all together. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. He's broken, he's heartbroken. God, how could you let this happen? In a sense, why don't you step in? And he says the word. It's really not appropriate for God, but remember. Well, he hasn't forgotten. And the and the writer here, I think, comes to that conclusion, but has to start off with, I can't believe what I'm seeing, experiencing in my life. You know, Um I never thought in the world I'd see the enemy, an enemy of yours, God, coming into your sanctuary, into your holy places, and chopping down all these beautiful carved images in the temple. And burning it, and lighting it up, and ruining all the. This is your worship center. This is your place. You know, all of a sudden, he's he's saying, God, they're wrecking your house. You know? And now, God doesn't say anything. And I don't want to speak on behalf of God, but I... I can't help but think at times that God looks at these people and says, it hasn't been my house for a long time. That's exactly what he said. And I I say that because I have precedence. In Scripture, Jesus says, I'm leaving your house to you desolate. God hasn't been welcome in this place for a very long time. This has been a dead worship place. I haven't been present. You haven't even noticed I've been gone, basically. And that's what's happened to the nation of Israel. They were going through the motions. They were doing the sacrifices. They were the priests and animals and lots of blood flying everywhere and lots of washing and lots of pride and, you know. But God says, I'm not even a part of it anymore. I'm not even a consideration. So for them to burn down these places, I wasn't using them anyway, is the idea. And so this writer here probably shows up at church, basically, with a true heart to worship, one of the few the remnant, as he sees everybody else kind of coming up with their lamb, saying, I know it's got a blind eye, but hey, can you look the other way? (laughs) And just sacrifice it anyway. It's not perfect, but that'll be okay. Won't it, priest? You know? Sure, 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 sure. Anytime, anytime, Bob. You know? But then you've got the real guy coming up saying, I'm offering up the best of my lamb. I'm giving you everything I've got. I'm, I'm declaring my sin before you. I'm passing my sins upon the animal. And, sacri- and, the, and the priest is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and going through them, doing its thing. There's a remnant there. And so the writer here is like, what is happening? And I think the writer understands eventually. I'm caught up. This, this remnant, this person, this true believer is caught up in the wake of most of Israel being backslidden, he's not, but most of Israel is, and there's nothing you can do. It isn't fair, is it? I mean, it doesn't feel fair. It's like I don't think that. I think about our country. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and I'm like, I've been doing that for decades. Maybe I need to do more. You feel like you're not doing enough, or maybe I'm not doing it right. Maybe there is no humility. Maybe I'm being prideful about my humility. You know, you you go through all those mental gymnastics. Maybe it's not. No, maybe you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do, and most aren't. And you're caught up in the wake of it. There are several prophets in the nation of Israel that are prophesying falsely at this time. And that's the very next verse here in verse 9. They're prophesying falsely. Jeremiah, at the time, is prophesying truth, okay? Telling them what's about to take place, what's happening is foreordained by God. Actually telling at times, some of the prophets saying, look, don't fight this, you just need to go to Babylon, you know? This is required. We are leaving. There is no repentance that's so much that God's going to forget the 70 years that we need to give the land rest. You're going to Babylon, accept it, and walk. Kind of thing. The prophets are saying that. The true prophets are. The other prophets are saying, not so. This is never going to happen. God's going to step in. And he's like God's like, those aren't my words. That is not what I say. So when he says this verse 9 here, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. They feel, the believer here feels, I, I can't hear God anymore. I don't know what's happening. He hasn't given us a time frame. I mean, even Nineveh had Jonah saying, what, 40 days till judgment. At least they had a time frame, and they knew what was coming. Not a very long prophecy, but very informative. Didn't even give them a chance to, here's what you need to do. They just did it, right? And God stayed his hand for a while, but eventually did judge Nineveh. There aren't any prophets anymore. Well, there are. They're just not telling you the truth. In Jeremiah 5, 31, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power and my people love to have it so, but what will you do in the end? Jeremiah calls them out on that. What do you do? Jeremiah had a congregation of himself. Nobody was listening to him. The only people that read and understand Jeremiah are the people after all this took place. It's us. We read it and we're like, yeah, oh, what a great prophet. At the time, nobody was listening to Jeremiah. He was the sole voice of God telling them the truth about what was taking place amongst hundreds, if not thousands of other prophets and priests saying, no, 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 don't listen to him. You Imagine how much courage and gut, grit that would take as a prophet To say and continue to say the same thing over and over, regardless of what everybody else is telling the nation. And everybody else in the nation says, I love it to be so. These prophets, I get, they're positive and encouraging. (laughs) Yeah, but they're lying. They're not preparing you for the truth. They're not giving you the truth. They're not preparing you for the future. And Jeremiah says, you guys, it's not right. Jeremiah 14:14, 14, 14, and the Lord said to me, "The prophets prophesy lies in my name, I've not sent them, command them, or commanded them, nor spoken to them. they prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. Now why would you do something like that? Why would you know in your heart you didn't hear from God, but you say it anyway? Because that's what everybody wants to hear. I guarantee you, nobody was going to Jeremiah's church and everybody was going to that other church. You know, they say the truth over there. They're not. They're not. It's not a good look. It's not a good thing. Fast forward to 2022, 2023. Jesus prophesied the same thing. Matthew 24, 24 for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. This doesn't end with Jeremiah and the nation of Israel and Babylon. It doesn't end with the first century church. It still goes on today. Now, I come short of saying that all the big churches, all the mega churches, they're all false prophets. I don't say that. I don't believe that at all. Like some of them are right on and dead on. I'm saying numbers don't matter. They don't. That's not evidence or proof of truth, okay? We have too many examples of false prophets with megachurches. We have a lot of examples of good prophets, true pastors who love their flock and love God, who have megachurches too. So it's not about the numbers, but it is about the message. What are they saying? Is it contrary to Scripture? Is it right on? needs to be. Jesus says you need to watch out for these false Christs and false prophets. The only way we get duped by a false Christ or a false prophet is if they tell us something that's untrue that we want to hear. I have to want to hear the truth. People have to want to hear the truth in order to receive the truth. If they don't want to hear it, they will find someone that won't tell it to them. Does that make sense? Too many times we look for counselors in our lives that, well, they don't give us counsel, they give us agreement or affirmation in our sin in what we're doing and that's not helpful nor is it loving but it is popular it's popular second peter chapter 2 verse 1 but there were also false prophets among the people even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction Who would go to a church where they deny Jesus Christ as being God come in the flesh? Right? I'd never have understood that. Do you not understand what Christianity is? And it's like you almost want to just print it out and put it in newspapers. Look, call yourself a Christian or don't. I'm not here to evangelize necessarily. I'm just here to give you a definition of what Christian means. And now based off of that definition from scripture, now evaluate your walk in your life. And then call yourself what you need to call yourself. Quit calling yourself a Christian when you're by definition not. Peter says that's going to take place. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, There will come a time, Paul says to this young pastor, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They're going to look and heap up for themselves teachers. that will tell them what they want. They'll collect them. I mean, you couldn't live in a better day and age where you can collect as many teachers as you want to tell you exactly what you want to hear. You can hit one teacher and say, man, they're an angry person. That's just a lot of wrath and, oh, pause or delete or scroll to the next one. And the next person says, you're fine. You're great. Nobody's perfect. Your sin, ah, it used to be, it's not anymore, and so on. And oh, I was so uplifted. <sighs> to change? To be conformed into the image of Christ? Or is it the first message in your backsliding sliding state, you know? Does it stop your progression? When we try to silence the Holy Spirit's conviction in our lives through other voices, um, well, we're destined for backsliding. Verse 10. Oh God, how long? That was this question in verse 9. We don't even know what's happening. How long is this going to take? How long will the, advers- the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. Could you go kill Babylon? I mean, I can identify with that prayer. It's like, okay, go get him. You know who the enemy I know who the enemy is. How do you not know who the enemy is? What's sitting on your hands, God? It's a pretty bold prayer. Go destroy them. For God is my king. That's the key from of old. See, God is his king, but he's not the king of everybody else in that country. For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the head or the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Leviathan's mentioned in Job, like unstoppable beast of some kind. He says, and I watched you just kind of crush these heads. heads. Hmm. What does Leviathan look like? That's for another time. And you gave them as food to the people. They're like, "Mm, this is the best Leviathan steak I've ever had. You know, he says, I've seen you do that. These Babylonians are nothing. You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up mighty rivers. Seen you do both. Seen you do Noah's thing. And I've seen you do the Red Sea thing and the River Jordan thing. The day is yours. The night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. It gives him credit for all these things. I know that you're the creator. And it's as if he's working his way through this, you know. Probably maybe at this point, remembering that he said the word remember. You did all these things. Of course you know what you're doing. Of course you understand. So he says it one more time. Verse 18, remember this. Maybe you do remember us, or maybe you remember all those things I just mentioned, but would you remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Never mind us and our repentance and the things you want us to do and our relationship with you, but what about the people you're using? I don't want to make too... It's hard not to. I hear that more than... Anything as a Christian trying to minister to unbelievers is, don't talk about me. What about you? Yeah, I've, I've never denied the fact that I'm saved by grace and that Jesus is my Savior and he's, he's there. And if I've come across any other way except to explain to you that my sin is as bad as your sin, but you do have sin that needs to be taken care of by Jesus. That's my only reason for evangelizing you is I'm saved by God's grace And this gift of salvation, I want you to be saved. I'm not saying that you're a sinner. I'm not. I'm saying that we're sinners and you just haven't acknowledged it yet. And I'm here to help you and lead you to repentance from it and towards the salvation of Jesus Christ. But that is the question here. Wait, I know that we're bad, but they're a foolish people. They're blaspheming your name. Oh, verse 19, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove into the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor Forever. Have respect uh, to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, plead your own cause, if not ours, is the idea. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. Take care of the really, really bad people first, and then when you get down to us, the turtle doves. You know? Uh, I like to think of myself as a turtle dove, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. I'm reminded daily of that, and I confess my sin daily, and I come to the cross daily, and I move forward with my walk with Jesus daily. So I'm always in that place of reminding myself of who I was. And although I have changed, oh, I'm not even close to being where I need to be, you know. So I'd never call myself a turtle dove, but look at him. These are bold prayers. Don't let the turtle doves die in the bank of the terrible Leviathan. I've seen you do it, you know. And then he says, respect your covenant. Can you imagine saying that to God? Hey, you signed a promise. (sighs) Wow. You signed a promise. You said you'd be there for us, that you're going to be our God, and we're going to be your people. And he's like, yeah. Do you remember signing the promise? Because I haven't seen you anywhere near my heart for decades. It's been 490 years since you've let the land rest and other things. Obviously, he's using that as one excuse. Your sin is so rich and I've waited I've waited centuries for you to figure that out. Respect my covenant or your covenant. Wow. Now I don't fault him for that. I honestly believe he doesn't see it maybe. Doesn't understand it. Maybe he didn't hear Jeremiah. I don't know what happened where he gets to the place where he can write something like this. I don't fault him. Cuz I've been in those places too. I look and I'm like, "Now why is this all happening? I mean, we're we're doing this. We're doing we're doing everything right." It No, there's more going on here, J.D. Dig a little deeper, you know, look a little further, pray a little harder. Let me speak to you instead of just coming to this conclusion based on your horizontal view of the world. Let me show you my perspective here. Oh, you're doing something. I get it, you know. Psalm 75. Now, this is almost an acceptance because it's titled Thanksgiving for God's Righteous Judgment. In other words, what you're doing isn't a mistake or because you haven't remembered, but it's justified. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. The very fact that we can see you chastising us shows us that you care and shows us that you're there. It's very important. Peter tries to bring that up to us too. Look, don't if you're being chastised by the Lord, John does too. If you're being chastened by the Lord, that's a good thing. That means you're his kid. If he doesn't care what you're up to, then you're in the wrong camp and he you're not his kid. I chasten my kids. I don't chasten your kids. I may judge your kids, you know. I can't believe they're yelling like that, but I'm not gonna do anything about it. I see a lot of kids in Walmart. I'm like, oh man. I see a lot of parents in Walmart too. It's like, oh man, you know. I'm not just blaming the kids, but you can see some tantrums being thrown that were they're based off of candy and not because if there's anything wrong with the child, you know. But I don't do anything. I don't walk up and say, "Honey, I've got this. You get your cereal. I'll beat your kid over here." For- no, I, never- I would never do that. I don't step in, and I say "beat" because that's basically what he's doing to the nation of Israel. He is correcting them in a harsh way, taking them captive into Babylon is pretty rough. Your wondrous works declare that your name is near. You haven't left us. You haven't forgotten us. You do remember us. In fact, that's why this is happening is because you remember us and the covenant very well. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. This is a quote, he says, from God. This is God speaking in the psalm. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly the earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved i set it up i set up its pillars firmly i said to the boastful do not deal boastfully and to the wicked do not lift up the horn do not lift up your horn on high do not speak with stiff necks he warned them over and over and over again i've said this to you don't be boastful don't lift up the horn the horn is authority you know Don't be stiff-necked. That's a word we don't use very often. It's just simply pride. Don't be prideful. When I come to God's word, it's so important that I come without pride. I can't hear anything in pride. I can't come to church full of pride and hear anything at all. All I do is just wait to get out of there as fast as I can because they're wrong and I'm right. Even though if I compare my life with scripture, it's juxtaposed. It's not the same. It does not. They're not parallel Lines, My life and God's line, life should be, but it's not. But that doesn't matter when you're full of pride. You're stiff-necked. You won't turn. Um, in Exodus 33, 5. For the Lord has said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. That's all he's asking for. There's a lot going on there. He's upset with them. The nation of Israel, I mean, right out of Egypt has already got problems with pride. Pride. And maybe it's because God gave them all the Egyptian stuff when they walked out. Do you remember the story? They were able to go to their neighbor's house and grab everything and just walk out with the gold, the silver, everything they ever need. Hey, get out of here and take everything with you, the Pharaoh said. And God gave them permission. And they grabbed all this stuff and they're walking out with 400 years of back pay, basically, as slaves. Well, now they're wearing it, you know. And there are these slaves walking around with all. I'm like too much. Have you ever seen someone with too much gold on? A little too much, you know. Whatever the rings are, a little too big, you know. I'm just envious, but, uh, but it's like okay. I, I mean, I hope you don't have to go swimming because you're going to drown. It's just there's no way you can carry all that. It's too much. And you can see God looking at them all, saying, "Oh, we're so sorry." With all the, you know, with all the, He's like, you know what? Let's get, a, let's get rid of the gold first. Let's take off all the ornaments that glorify you. Set those down. And then let me see what I'll do with you. Let's start there. That humility is just a wonderful place to be. I feel so much more comfortable when I'm humble than when I'm prideful. And I know the difference and I can feel it in me. I can feel pride. Pride. You know it when you're prideful. If, if I know it, I know you know it, okay? So I know when I'm being prideful, and I, I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. My stomach's upset. I'm usually a little bit defensive and angry. I'm right, you know, and I'm, you know, and I walk around, and I have a miserable day in my pride. But, boy, nobody got in my way kind of thing. And then when humility comes, it's like oh, such a relief. It's such a relief to have that Humility to let that come upon you, to let God bring that into your life. You're like, oh, man. And when you finally walk up to your kid or to your wife or to whoever it is and say, you know what, I don't know why I said all that stuff. I don't know why I acted like that. I mean, I do. It was prideful and horrible. And you begin that repentance and that you know, uh, asking for forgiveness and, and, and all to that person. And you can see the whole thing just melt away, all that anxiety. and It's all gone. And Humility, humility is just a beautiful place to live. To just walk in that. Proverbs 11 talks about these gold things. Our pride. Proverbs eleven twenty two, As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. Now, he picks on men a verse earlier, but I, I thought, no, women really need to hear this this morning. <laughs> Kidding. But isn't that amazing? I mean, what a description. You can see the pig prancing with the gold snap. You see my gold ring? You're still a pig. You know, I don't care how many gold rings you put on. You're still a pig. And men were the same way. And it's not just women, you know, men with pride. You're still a pig. You just, we are. It's ugly on us. You know, to be masculine, to be what God's called us to be as men is different than pride. It is. Um, To be dignified is one thing. To be prideful is another. Let's put it that way. I'm all for dignity all day long. You know? Um, I'm all for that. As I recall David saying, I'll be even more more undignified than this. I'm I'm not, I I understand what was happening, but he carried himself the rest of the time as a good leader, as a king, uh, respectful of the position. Does that make sense? So that's what I mean. As a man, I want to be respectful of the position that God's put me in, and I want to walk in dignity, um, but not in pride. And, and same for women. It's important to not have that pride. And I think it comes from a lot of times being told you're wrong a lot, and you're done with people telling you that you're wrong, and so pride wells up. And you say, I'm not going to let anybody tell me I'm wrong ever, ever again. And in the process of doing that, you, well, you haven't really taken care of the problem because now you're wrong in a different way. Now you're prideful. You know, you've added to that. You know, maybe you weren't wrong before. Maybe they were wrong. It doesn't make any difference. In humility, we have the example of not a woman, but of a man, Jesus Christ, who walked in humility, washed feet, loved, carried himself with dignity, never ran anywhere, always is in control of his relationship with God, you see, but knew how to be masculine, but at the same time, uh, compassionate, you know, and understanding. God's called us to that. Verse 6, for exaltation comes from, or comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one, he exalts another, or and exalts another. And in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, and it is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Now he's talking about a cup of wrath. That's what it's called. And dregs, I don't know if you know what they are, but that's like the, the the particles at the bottom of the glass, basically. Most of our wine or juice or whatever it is that you drink has been purified pretty pretty well that you don't have dregs at the bottom. But in that purification process of wine back then, they would let it set the first, you know, they'd crush the grapes and put it in there, and then all the stuff would settle to the bottom. And they'd carefully pour it out, leaving the grounds think of coffee if that helps you, if you're not, you know, whatever. They leave the grounds at the bottom and then they stop. Now some of the grounds went in and so they'll let this jar sit and settle and, you know, and mature. And then they pour it again and they do this, you know, up to seven different times till they had a really good wine. What he's saying is here, God has got his wrath mixed and ready to go. Here it comes. They would mix the wine. It's about a, I think it was like a five to one ratio. You, know, you had the alcohol in there to kill all the bacteria. And most of it was water. And so they had that ratio. So he's mixed it all together. You guys aren't even waiting for the dregs to stop. You're drinking my wrath and you're getting the full bits and pieces as well. It's nothing pure about it for you. There's nothing smooth about this wrath that's coming your way. That's the idea behind this. And you're going to drink it down to the, and Revelation talks about that cup. But I will declare forever verse 9 I will sing praises to the God of Jacob all the horn of the wicked all the horns of the wicked I will uh, uh, I will also cut off but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. He says I know what you're doing now is true righteousness it's it's righteous judgment based off of 74 I've moved on to 75 now I believe that that's of you but and I know how it all ends. I know this is corrective is what he's saying and i know that the, the the wrath is still coming for them and and we'll get exalted but we need there needs to be some humility first basically 76 this one is the majesty of god in judgment but he's worthy of praise in the middle of it um, in judah god is known his name is great in israel In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and sword of battle. He's reminiscing of all the things that God's done for them, you know, giving us victory. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep and none of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, Both the chariot and horse were cast into the dead sleep. Um, Into a dead sleep, is what he says. You can see him taking it to the next level. I see what you're doing here. It isn't about Israel, the name. It's about the condition of the heart for Egypt or Israel. And it's the unrighteousness in either that's being judged. That's all he's saying. Okay, I can see that now. He says, I know that you'll exalt us when we become uh, humble. I know that the pride must fall and I'm seeing what you're doing here. I know that you're well-known in our country. I know that we worship you and that we have houses of worship and we haven't been doing that for a long time. And I see what you're doing. You're judging us like you judged the chariots. It's happening in our country. Not because you've forgotten us, but because we've forgotten you is the idea. Verse seven, you yourself are to be feared. It does bring fear when you know you don't have a blank check with God like this. It's important to know. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The grace of God covers up all of our sin, all of it. Of course it does. Of course it does. But we can walk away from that. We can leave that. We can put Jesus in the rearview mirror. And if you think he's going to leave you alone as a believer, backsliding, you've got another thing coming. He is going to come. He's going to do whatever he has to do because he's concerned about eternity. He's concerned about your soul. Just like Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, that their soul may be saved. He wants that for us as well. I'm not willing to let you go down this path to the point where you deny me as your Lord and Savior and walk away from me. I'm going to stop you before you get to that point of unbelief. He I know that. You yourself are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence... When once you are angry, you cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath, you shall gird yourself. Make vows to the Lord. So this is, we see what you're doing. You're still enthroned. You're still worthy to be praised. Now back to us. And so he begins to sing the song to the people in the crowd. Surely the wrath of man, okay, verse 11, make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring presence to him who ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is awesome to the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth need to know how high the king of kings is. He's not a peer. He's high and lifted up and in authority. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. It is encouraging. Um, When we feel your correction, when we feel your conviction, it's encouraging when we're doing it right because you tell us then too. We love all of it. The the constant communication with us from you to us and from us to you is just what's worth everything for us. And that's what the first psalmist says. We don't hear from you. That's worse than anything. Anything. We don't want to just hear good news. We want to hear all of it. So God, we thank you for your word that we get encouraged when encouragement is due. We get correction when correction is due. You're just a very, very good father and you're raising your children well. We appreciate that. And we give you glory, whether we're being corrected or whether we're being encouraged in what we're doing. We want them both because you're looking out for us. You love us. You want us to be, well, the best. And we want to be that, Lord. So thank you for your word this morning. We receive it with gladness. We apply it to our lives. We do have fear of you. And we have a love for you as well. Thank you for for both. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a, a great next week.